Welcome to today's podcast from Sherwood Baptist Church. For more information on Sherwood or Pastor Michael Catt, visit our website at SherwoodBaptist.net. And now, here's Pastor Michael Catt. I want you to take your Bibles and turn to 1 Peter. Turn to 1 Peter. We're going to start there. And I want us to do some practical application of what we've been talking about in this Living Word series. And in observation, interpretation, and application. How, how do we learn to study and grasp the Bible for ourselves? How, how do we become students of Scripture? Because you, you never should stop learning. You never should stop growing, especially when it comes to the Word of God. In, in learning some basic tools, just like in first grade, you learn the ABCs or you begin to learn addition and then you learn the multiplication table because those things, you once you learn them, you carry them with you. So are some of these principles of Bible study. If you can learn to do these and you can make it a habit in your life to, to study the scripture according to these principles, then they will always be with you. They will be tools that you can use as you're studying the Word of God. And so uh, to just go back a little bit, we talked in the last message about observation. What do I see? Interpretation. What does it mean? And application. Uh, how does it work? Here's the issue. There are more Bibles sold in America than any other book. It is still the number one best-selling book in the world, and especially in America. And yet, it is the most unread book that is sold. And the, the, the other side of that is you may be under the Word uh, in church, but you may not be in it for yourself. And the danger could be that you would depend on a professional milkman to deliver for you the milk of the word when God wants you to not just get the milk, but he wants you to go into the meat of the word of God. John chapter 6 and verse 63, the words I have spoken to you are spirit and they are life. And so let's look at 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 2. 1 Peter 2 verse 2, because if there's no appetite, there's no ability to observe the things that God has for you. Like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the word so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. Now, what God is wanting us to do is to have an appetite for the word. The word is described as honey, as meat, as milk, as bread. It's a well-rounded meal. And you and I need to have an appetite for the Word of God. And so coming up on the screen are going to be some verses that talk about why the Word of God is important. And you can write down those references, but listen and look as I read them. John chapter 8 and verse 31. If you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. So he gives a qualification for discipleship. And you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. The truth will liberate you. Job 23 and verse 12. I have treasured the word of his mouth more than my necessary food. In one of my old Bibles, I have written by that verse, no breakfast, no Bible, no Bible, no breakfast. Because it is important for us that we understand that more than feeding our bodies, we need to feed our souls. So if, if I don't have the Bible, I shouldn't eat breakfast until I get it. 
until I get in the word. Jeremiah 15, 16. Your words were found and I ate them and your words became for me a joy and delight of my heart. Psalm 119 and verse 97. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Your commandments make me wiser than my enemies, for they are ever mine. I have more insight than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the ages because I have observed your precepts. I have restrained my feet from every evil way that I may keep your word. I have not turned aside from your ordinances, for you yourself have taught me. How sweet are your words to my taste. Yes, sweeter than honey to my mouth. From your precepts, I get understanding. Therefore, I hate every false way. Now go back to that verse in 1 Peter. Because I want you to see what he's saying here. Peter says that literally we should want the word of God like a baby right out of the womb. Wants to get milk from its mother. That we should have an insatiable appetite, a desire to be nurtured, a desire to be fed, a longing and a desperation to grasp the milk of the word of God and to feed from the word of God so that we find the nourishment that sustains us to life. And so when he says long for, it's an imperative verb. It's not an option. He says, if you're a believer, you should long for, you should strongly desire, you should have a passion for the word of God. Paul uses this same word seven times in referring to intensity and an insatiable desire and a passion. He says, long for the pure milk, the unadulterated, the not watered down milk. You can find preachers and teachers and books that will water down the Bible. You can find people that say, we preach the Bible and then they quote a verse and then they never pick up the Bible again and it's all pop psychology and it's all self-help and it's all feel good and it's all felt needs. That's not an appetite for the word of God. You can have an appetite for somebody that makes you feel good about yourself. What you need is an appetite for somebody that tells you how you can fix yourself. And that comes from looking in the word of God and making those adjustments. The pure milk, the not watered down, the uncontaminated milk of the word of God. Because until you get an appetite for the milk, you can't chew on the meat. So we need to have, first of all, an appetite for the milk of the word. Then, no observation, no interpretation. Now, we've talked about this in some of the previous messages, but you and I do not begin with our experiences and then go look at the scripture and see if the scriptures back up our experiences. We begin with the scripture and then we look at the fact of our experiences and see if they are valid spiritual experiences or not. So as I observe, I ask myself three questions. First of all, I ask questions. I ask questions of the text. What's going on here? Who's talking? That's the W's that we're going to go through in just a minute. Secondly, I look for answers in the text. I look for answers in the text. I not only ask questions, but I look for answers in the text. 70% of our questions would be answered if we read the text in context. 
And we're going to look at that in Mark chapter 4 in just a moment. And you're going to see why the context is important to the text that you don't make it say something that it doesn't say. So the more you spend in observation, the less time you have to spend in interpretation because the best commentary on scripture is scripture. The best word about the word is contained in the word itself. And so you and I need to observe and ask questions and look for answers in the text and then record and reflect, record and reflect. In other words, write down what you learn, keep a journal, keep a notebook and write down what God teaches you in the text because a dull pencil is better than the sharpest mind because you will forget 90% of this message before tonight. What you write down, you have a greater chance of remembering. What you reflect and review on can become a part of your spiritual DNA. So you write it down and you reflect on what you've learned. You just don't take notes and then skip off or you don't take notes at all and then think, oh, I can remember all of that. I promise you, if I tested every one of us in this room on what I said last Sunday morning, if you were here, everybody in this room, save a handful, would flunk the test because you don't remember. You say, well, sometimes you repeat things a lot. That's because until you get it, I'm going to keep repeating it. You know, you have to hear something 13 times before you understand it's important. Did you know that? The average American has to hear something 13 times before they think it's important. That's why when you say to your kids, sit down, sit down, sit down, sit down. About number 13, after your voice is up and your blood vessels are popping in your neck, they understand I'm supposed to sit down. You have to reflect, you have to study, you have to absorb it. Now, knowledge without application is wasted and lost. Here's what I mean by that. If you don't use it, you lose it. If you don't use it, you lose it. Things that you learned, if you don't practice them and apply them, you lose them. You say, well, I, I got that down. I, I'm, I'm never going to have to worry about that. I, I've, got, I've got a handle on that. Listen, you could study a foreign language, but if you don't use that foreign language every day in some way, you'll forget it. You know, I have forgotten more Hebrew than I ever knew. I mean, it's just a, a basic lie. I don't use it every day, and so I've forgotten more than I ever knew. And so when, when you talk about using the word of God and applying the word of God, you need to understand you're not studying to increase your mind and just gain more information. You're studying so you learn how do I apply this to the rest of my life? What I'm getting in my quiet time, what I'm getting in sermons, what I'm getting in a Bible study class, how do I apply this to the rest of my life? Because the writer of Hebrews says you can be dull of hearing. Not because of the enormity of scripture. There's so much stuff in there. I can't figure it out. But because of the dullness of sensitivity. You can become dull of hearing. Now, there's a comedian out there that says you can't fix stupid. And you know, that, that is a profound thought. In fact, in some paraphrase of Proverbs, it ought to be in there. You just can't fix stupid. 
I mean, you know, I, I say to people, don't argue with idiots because they've got too much experience at being an idiot. And I don't have enough life left to argue with them. So, I mean, you just can't fix stupid. Now, let me ask you a question. How stupid is it to have possession of a book that tells you not only about life eternally, but about how to live this life on this earth, the kind of people you ought to marry, the kind of decisions you ought to make, the integrity that you ought to have in business, the ethics that you ought to have, the morals that you ought to have, the rules by which you ought to live. How stupid is it to have this book and never study it and apply it to your life? Now, that's just stupid. I didn't say you were stupid. I said it's stupid to have all the answers in your hand and not learn how to use it. I could ask some of these young people today, show, show me how to do an application on an iPhone, and they could tell me in a New York second. I could say, tell me what the book of Nehemiah is about, and they don't have a clue. 18-year-old, you ought to know what the book of Nehemiah is about. There's no excuse, having been through youth camps and Sunday school and discipleship and personal Bible study, you ought to know what the book of Nehemiah is about without somebody telling you. By the way, it's the greatest leadership book that's ever been written. You want to be a reader, you better get familiar with Nehemiah. Because it's the greatest leadership book that's ever been written. You see, it's amazing that that we don't know the Word of God, that we're ignorant of the things of God, and yet in these pages are the truths by which we're to live. They're the warnings to us. They are the, the rebukes to us. They're the correction to us. It's the guidance for us. It teaches us how to be smart in a world that is dumbing down. I mean, if you want to be wise, if you want to be smart, if you want to be set above the crowd in this dumbing down world where we're trying to make education and everything else so that it is below average, so everybody feels comfortable, just know the Word of God and you'll be smarter than everybody around you. And so we have to apply the Word of God every time I fail to respond. Now listen carefully. Every time I fail to respond to a revealed truth from the Word of God, I am applying a dumbing-down principle to myself. I am becoming hard of hearing, dull of hearing, insensitive to the Spirit of God. Every time I sit and listen or sit and study and I do not take application of that into my life, in reality, what I'm doing is I am having an immeasurable hearing loss Until I will get to the point where I could sit in a service where the power of God was moving and the spirit of God was moving and the word of God was being taught. And I could walk out and say, I didn't get anything out of that. Let me tell you something. It wasn't the fault of the preacher. And it wasn't the fault of the Holy Spirit. And it was not the inadequacy of the Word of God. It is because you have sat and listened to so much and done so little that you have self-imposed a hearing loss on your life. Where you can't hear the Word of God. And you can't respond to the Word of God because the Spirit of God can't speak to you because His still small voice is not in your decibel range anymore. And so I would say to you that discernment comes with application. Hebrews 5.14, solid food is for the mature who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. So how, how do I become mature? Practice. Practice. Can you imagine 
Can you imagine a kid saying, you know, what do you want to do when you grow up? He's, let's say he's in middle school. What do you want to do when you grow up? I want to play football for the university of whatever. Great. Uh, you playing in middle school? No, nope. no, nope. I don't like to, I don't like two a days. I don't like to sweat, but I'm going to tell you something. I am undefeated in NCAA 2009. I've got a team. We haven't lost a game. I win by an average of 30 points. I can kick a 75-yard field goal. I can run 200 yards a game. I can throw 35 completions. I got this controller and I got it all down. Well, you going to play football? No, but I'm going to play for the university of whatever. Really? Get in high school. How's your football playing coming? Great. Now I got NCAA 2011. I'm just progressing up the video game scale. Well, do you know how to block and tackle? Sure. You just push button A and you keep pushing it. And he keeps doing this. No, stupid. That's not blocking and tackling. That's playing at blocking and tackling. You got to learn how to knock somebody on their back and look down over them and say, don't come my way again. Well, I don't think I could do that. You ever been in a weight room? No, but I've driven by one. Do you think that that young man has got a chance of playing football? No. Why? Because he doesn't practice. It's not about showing up for the game on Friday night and having your girlfriend going, he's so cute in a uniform. Mark Rick is not going to come watch you play your video game. He wants to know if you can do it in real life. You know what Bible study is? Bible study is learning how on Tuesday and on Thursday and on Friday night and on Saturday and any time during the day, it's learning how to live out what you've been studying so that when people look at you, they say, you know what? You're a player. You know how to do this. You know how to live this. You know how to live this out. You actually have applied all of this and you've prepared yourself for the game of life. So, could I invite you to become a reader? Because leaders are readers. Could I invite you to become a reader? Well, I I just don't like to read. Learn to. Learn to read. Because you see, when you read, you train yourself. Now, let me just give you just a basic little thing. Read a paragraph, read a parable, read a story in the scriptures, close your Bible and tell yourself what it said. If you don't get it right, read it again. Until you can read something and close your Bible and then say, this is what that chapter says. This is how you can summarize that chapter. You read it until you can apply it and learn it. So let's go to Mark chapter 4. And I'm going to do this for you today, class. <laughs> All right, so I'm going to do it for you today. There's a test. And I'm going to give you all the answers to the test today. But hopefully you can take another passage at another time and learn how to do this. Mark chapter 4, verse 35. On that day, oh, there's a day. It's a particular day. Something happened on that day. On that day when evening came, so there's a time of day. On that day when evening came, he said to them, them is somebody, he didn't just say it to the air, let us go over to the other side, leaving the crowd. Oh, so they were with the crowd. 
They took him along with them in a boat just as he was, and other boats were with him. And there arose a fierce gale of wind, and the waves were breaking over the boat, so much that the boat was already filling up. Jesus himself was in the stern, asleep on a cushion. And they awoke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he got up and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Hush, be still. And the wind died down and it became perfectly calm. And he said to them, Why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? And they became very much afraid and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him. Now there in your notes, you've got the who, what, where, when, why, and wherefore. Let me go through it and give it to you in this passage. And this won't be exhaustive, but I'm just going to give you the the look of this so you can understand how to do this kind of observation. Who's involved? Jesus, his disciples, and a crowd. He's leaving the crowd. He's getting in a boat with Jesus, with his disciples. So who's involved? Jesus and the disciples. It's important. This is not Moses. This is not Joshua. It's not one of the kings of Israel. Who's involved in the story? Who are the players? Who are the characters? Who are the personalities? What's happening? There's a miracle. It's a miracle. So this is a story of one of the miracles. This miracle did not involve a person. It involved nature. So this miracle happened, it began with a storm, and it ended with a calm. So there's a miracle that happened. Started with a storm, ended with a calm. Now, the thing to note about this miracle is the who, the disciples, the experts who owned the boats were afraid. So they were afraid, and that was the platform For Jesus to do a miracle in their midst and to teach them something. Where? It happened on the Sea of Galilee. It happened in the evening. At the end of a day. So where did it happen? It happened on the sea in the evening. And what was he doing? He he was testing their expertise. These guys who knew boats, knew the storms that could come up on the Sea of Galilee. He's putting them to a test. When did it happen? After Jesus had taught all day long, he had been teaching. That's the context. If you read before, you will find out he's been teaching all day long. Now, one little note that you won't find in the text, that there are only 52 recorded days in the 33-year life of Jesus. So when Jesus does something and it's recorded, one of 52 days out of 33 years... When God came to earth, you need to think that must be important. I must need to know that. I I need to pay attention. This is going to be on the test. This is one of those days. It's a full day. Why? Why did it happen? To teach them about faith. To teach them about faith. Look at the question he asked. Why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? There's the why question right there. He, he, He had talked to them previously about having faith the size of a grain of mustard seed. And so what he taught them, they were now being tested on about faith and what size faith they had and what sort of faith they had. And wherefore, or the how question, if God tested me and tested my faith, 
Or if God tested me in an area where I think I'm an expert, would I pass the test? If God tested me in an area where I think, you know, I I know the answer to that question. I know how to handle this. And God put a storm in my life and tested me in the area of my expertise, would I know how to answer that question? So now let's go to five keys to interpretation. There's the observation, the who, what, when, where, why, and wherefore. Now let's go to five keys to interpretation. Number one, context. Context. That's the reason for all the W questions. What's the context? I cannot emphasize that enough that a text without a context is a pretext. Okay, you've got to interpret scripture in in content and context. That's the first two. Content, first of all. Context. What happened before? Chapter 1. Verses 31, uh, chapter 4, verses 1 through 33, there were parables. He gave them a lecture. In chapter 4, verse 35 through chapter 5, verse 43, there are works, and he puts them in a lab. One thing you can see as you read through the Gospels, at any time Jesus did a major teaching, he always threw his disciples into a test to see if they had learned anything. Remember when the three were on the top of the Mount of Transfiguration and Peter said, let's just stay up here and have church 24-7. And Jesus sent them down in the valley and they dealt with the demon-possessed boy and they didn't know how to deal with it. And he said, this kind only comes out by prayer and fasting. What did he do? He said, oh yeah, we could all sit here in church and have Bible studies and sing Kumbaya, but the world is out there that is hurting that needs the message that we've learned here. And so we need to go from the mountain into the valley and carry out the work. And so there's the the context. Now, by the way, every cult and every heresy is built on a violation of that principle, of the principle of context. They will take a verse or a teaching out of context and make it apply to whatever they want it to apply to. For instance, there was a preacher on television this last week who said, if God has laid on your heart to pray for someone who is sick, That means that God is going to heal them. There is no scriptural basis any fifth grader could tell you the Bible doesn't say that. And yet this person gets on television and proclaims that to have a burden to pray for someone who is sick is a sign that God's going to heal them. What do you say to people that have been burdened to pray for those and they have died? You don't have anything to say because the Bible never told you to say that. It doesn't negate our responsibility to pray for those who are sick. The Bible does tell us to do that. So we have to be careful of context. Comparison. Comparison. You look at the different, if it's in the Gospels, how is it stated in other Gospels? In Luke's Gospel, it says, where is your faith? And so you compare Scripture with Scripture. That's why you need a concordance. I'm about to talk to you about some of the books that were in our notes the last time about some of the books that you needed to own. Culture is the next one. What's the culture? That's where you could use a good Bible dictionary. What's the culture in which he is speaking? And then consultation. You begin to consult commentaries and a good study Bible. You should have an atlas so you can know if it's happening in the northern kingdom or the southern kingdom, if it's happening around the Sea of Galilee. By the way, most of the ministry of Jesus happened around the Sea of Galilee. The overwhelming majority of what he said and the miracles that he performed 
happened in a radius around the Sea of Galilee. So the Sea of Galilee is the most significant location in all of the Holy Land except for Jerusalem and, the, and Golgotha and the empty tomb. It is the most significant place to be. So you need to know those things. You say, well, I, you know, I don't have, I don't have, I, I, I'm not a reader. And, and books are expensive. Okay, let me just ask you something. What do you collect? You collect knives, you collect guns, you collect coins, you collect CDs, you collect DVDs. I promise you, I promise you, I, I would bet money on this, and I'm not a betting man, but I'd bet money on this, that you own more DVDs in your house of meaningless material, more than you own books about the Bible. You know more about what Tom Hanks has done than what Doubting Thomas has done. You know more about how the world thinks and how the world appears and what the world's philosophy is because you've invested in things you can't take with you to heaven. Your guns, your knives, your boats, your cars, your houses, your land, your cattle, your stock, all of that's going to be gone. And so if you want to show God that you're serious about him, you might ought to buy a concordance and an atlas and a Bible dictionary and some commentaries so you can learn to be a good student of the word of God. Because what you collect is what is most important to you. In my library, I have about 11,000 books. You say, well, you're a preacher. You're supposed to be reading. I know that. But when Terry and I got married, and she was making about $75 a week, and I was making $100 a week, we sat down and did our food budget, our entertainment budget, our, our life budget, and I had in our budget, making that kind of money in 1974 and 75, I had $50 a month budgeted to go to the Baptist bookstore and buy books. Now, we could have said, we're going to use that money and go to the movie theater every Friday night. We could have said, we're going to use that money and go eat out four times more a week. But we made a decision that the investment that needed to be made was in books and in reading and in understanding. In fact, Terry's library has over a thousand books in it. And she's not paid to preach. Let me ask you something. If I walk in your house, how many fiction books do you have as opposed to books that teach you how to study the Word of God? Where your heart is, that's where you are. And if your heart is to study the Word of God, you're going to change buying every new DVD that comes out and downloading every song on iTunes and getting every new piece of technology and equipment. And you're just going to start saying, I may still do some of that, but I'm going to start building my spiritual library and I'm going to have some things that I can study and apply and use in my spiritual life because one day I'm going to give an account of my life. I'm going to give an account of what I've done. And how I've spent my resources. So, let's talk about application. Four things. First of all, I need to know myself. 
I need to know myself. By that, I simply mean you need to know what you tend to avoid. There are certain passages that you may read and books that you may read and study. You need to learn to read books that are not real comfortable for you to read. Ken prayed a few moments ago in the offertory prayer about Malachi. I guarantee you there are people in this room that don't read Malachi just because they want to avoid that verse that says bring all the tithes into the storehouse. And so you don't even study Malachi because what you've already said, if you know yourself, is I don't want to know truth that costs me anything. So you've got to know yourself. You, know, you need to know where your strengths and your weaknesses are. Secondly, you've got to look in the mirror. You've got to look in the mirror and make adjustments. When you look in the mirror of God's Word, that's what James says the Word is like. When you look in the mirror of God's Word, you begin to make adjustments in your life according to what God reveals to you. Number three, you need to ponder on it and meditate on it. You need to ponder on it and meditate on it. Joshua 1.8 Meditate on it day and night. This is not just about making a decision I need to do better. It is about setting a direction I need to become a student of the Word of God. And if it's starting with five minutes a day or ten minutes a day, start to become a student of the Word of God. Studying to show yourself approved, a workman that need not be ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Number four, practice it. Practice it. It's not enough to know it. You got to do it. There can't be a disconnect between what God says and how we are living. And that is all tied to a supernatural book with a supernatural author that has revealed to us how to live in a supernatural way according to the word of God. Now, let me give you some facts and tell you why this is important. Because... Our world is unraveling. The scripture says in the end times, it will go from bad to worse. Why? Because evil compounds. It's like compounded interest. Evil compounds. It doesn't start over. It builds on the evil that has already been. And so we need to understand that this world is unraveling and it's coming unglued. And there's only one thing that is not going to unravel. And that's God's plan and God's word and God's son. And so the Bible says he holds all things together. So when the world's unraveling, what are you going to do? I'm going to read the one who holds all things together, who tells me that it's going to be all right because in the last two chapters, there's no devil there's no terrorism. There's nothing. Jesus is sitting on the throne high and lifted up and we are in heaven worshiping him. That's the way it's going to end. So if I know that, then I need to read backwards and say, now, how am I supposed to live until I get there? Amen. Let me just give you a couple of facts about how the world is changing. Students, you may want to pay real close attention because we got all these dreams. You know, I'm going to become this when I grow up and I'm going to become that. And I'm not just talking to seniors. I'm talking to grade school kids. I'm going to become this when I grow up and I'm going to be that. And I'm going to, I'm going to have this. I'm going to get this kind of car and I'm going to have this kind of money and I'm going to live in this kind of house and I'm going to have this kind of, the minute I'm going to be successful and I'm going to do all that stuff. Well, let me just tell you something. China has more honor students than all the students in the United States combined first through college. 
The Chinese are outthinking us, outlearning us, outsmarting us, and they're going to have the jobs that you think you're going to get. Secondly, if you took every job in America, every job, from convenience store all the way to the president of a Fortune 100 company, if you took every job in America and transferred it to China, there would be enough people right now in China to do every job in every field in America today and still 1,156 more people that could do that same job waiting to do it. And you can't get Americans to work. They want to leave early. They want to come late. They want to take a long lunch break. They don't want to work. They don't want to serve. They don't want to learn. We're just lazy and we think, hey, we're just going to keep rolling in the dough here. Government's going to bail us out. Everything's going to be great. I'm telling you, it's unraveling. There are more text messages sent and received every day than the population of the planet. Six billion text messages a day. Now, can I ask you something? Do you really have that much to say? I mean, for the love of Pete, do you have that much to say? Every time I get a Twitter, I say, what's that twit saying to me now? (laughs) The time of Shakespeare, who's considered the greatest writer of literature at the time of Shakespeare, 540,000 words in the English language. Today, there are five times more words in the English language than at the time of Shakespeare. But we can't get American students to use the right verb tense in a sentence. What makes you think this world is going to lay down and let you have it? I'm just telling you, the world's unraveling. 1.5 exabytes of unique New information is generated worldwide in 2009. That means that the information that is generated in 2009 is more than the last 5,000 years combined. Information this year. By the way, for people that say, you know, I want to go into technology. Everybody that you read the internet, go into technology, get in the technology field because that's where it's happening. Do you realize that if you went into a technology field today as a freshman in a technology, in a two-year technology school, that by the time you graduate, everything you have learned is out of date. Everything. Because information is changing so fast. You say, well, what's that got to do with anything? i tell you what it's got to do with. Because when you can't get a job and when somebody's more qualified than you and your life is falling apart, this is where you're going to go. So you might as well decide you're going to go there now because life is falling apart. I'm not a pessimist. I'm I'm optimistic because I know that God's going to win. But I'm not naive. 
And ladies and gentlemen, the church is walking around with blinders on thinking that the world will change when we are ignoring the greatest book about change in the history of man. In the book of Joshua, it says, This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that your way may be prosperous and successful. You want to know what success is in God's eyes? It's not what you have. It's what you know. That's success. That's what God says success is. Because when I stand before God one day, he's not going to ask me how much I made. He's not going to ask me what kind of car I drove. He's not going to ask me where I bought my suits. He's not going to ask me where I went to college. He's not going to ask me what I majored in. What he's going to ask me is, what did you do with the greatest textbook ever written to help you live your life and be prepared to meet me one day? So if I'm going to meet him one day, I may need to know what he had to say before I have to meet him. Thanks for listening to today's podcast from Sherwood Baptist Church and Pastor Michael Gatt. For more information about Sherwood, you can visit our website at SherwoodBaptist.net. If you live or visit in the Albany area, we invite you to worship with us here at Sherwood. Thanks again for listening, and have a great day.